Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm a writer. And I'm Terry, and I'm a first grade teacher. And this is our podcast, Reading During Recess. Today, we will be talking about Linda Sue Park's novel, When My Name Was Kyoko. And I am so excited that we are talking about this. When Sarah and I were originally brainstorming books to talk about, we went through like a lot of the big ones first, ones that either we both had read or that are just part of the established canon of children's literature. And then I remembered this one because this was one of my favorite books growing up. Um, This is one of my favorite authors growing up. So I am super duper excited to talk about it today. Yeah. Because I love it. Me too. I had not read this book before, but I really enjoyed reading it for the first time, and I'm excited to talk about it. On a serious note, I do want to offer a trigger warning for this episode for sexual assault, because in this episode, we do discuss a bit the sex trafficking of Korean women, also known as comfort women, who were raped by Japanese soldiers. So FYI, we wanted to make you guys aware. Yeah. This book was published in 2002, and it is a historical fiction novel that is set in Japanese-occupied Korea in the 1940s, and it opens in 1940, 20 years after Japan invaded Korea and two years before Japanese involvement in World War II. And the book is narrated by two different narrations, one by 10-year-old Sun Hee, who is very scholarly minded. She's a committed student and her more mechanically inclined older brother, Taeyul, who live with Amoni, who is their mother, uh, Abuji, father, and their uncle. And the beginning of the novel really focuses on what daily life was like in Korea under Japanese rule. And to say the least, it was grim. During this time, expression of Korean culture and heritage Uh, was forbidden. It was illegal to speak or write in Korean, display the Korean flag, or study Korean history. There's this really moving scene in the beginning of the novel where all of the Korean people have been ordered to dig up and cut down and burn all of their Rose of Sharon trees because the Rose of Sharon is the national tree of Korea. And so the Japanese want that tree gone and they want it replaced with cherry trees, which is the national tree of Japan. Yeah, there's this uh, complete assimilation. There's a story that they reference in the beginning about a true story about a Korean athlete who competes in the Olympics, Sung Ki Chung, who was a world record holding marathon runner for from 1935 to 1947. And even now, you'll usually find his name, his Japanese name listed and his nationality as Japanese, which was, I think, a pretty telling and heartbreaking story. It was a pretty effective way that Park introduces how much of Korean culture has been stamped down. And at the start of the novel, uh, how it opens and where the book gets, gets its name from is that the new law has just been passed that forces Koreans to adopt new Japanese names and in a subtle act of defiance, Abuji chooses a Japanese family name that sort of references their Korean heritage and where their family is from. And this is kind of a rare moment for him because he's always presented as being this very rational and level-headed scholar who never outwardly opposes the Japanese. And that's kind of in contrast to his brother, the children's uncle, who's more openly rebellious, and he actually secretly runs an illegal Korean newspaper through his printing business, which worries his family and definitely puts him at risk. So the book opens in 1940, but covers uh, the span of a couple years, and eventually we start to see what life is like with war on the horizon, and tensions are starting to rise. Uh, The Japanese are confiscating more food, so it's harder for the family to find nutritious meals. They are taking metal for the war effort. As Sarah said, they're burning down rows of Sharon trees, and uh, things are becoming very dangerous for Koreans who are not outwardly supportive of the Japanese empire. And after Sunhi receives a cryptic warning from her Japanese friend Tomo. She she warns her uncle that he should go into hiding because she thinks that he is in danger. But and he does. He does. Yeah. Yeah, he does and he does go into hiding, which devastates the whole family because they miss him and they don't know when they're going to see him again. 
And because his his fleeing very clearly makes it clear to the local Japanese police that he is a person of interest. Right. Yeah, it, it confirms that he's been doing something illegal. And mm-hmm. regrettably, Sunhi seems to have misinterpreted Tomo's warning and her uncle probably wasn't immediately at risk and probably didn't need to leave right away. And so she bears a lot of guilt for that about feeling stupid like maybe she misunderstood the warning although i feel like it was probably best for him to go yeah i mean it was it was gonna come out yeah what what had been happening was that her uncle had been she finds this out from her brother right after her uncle goes into hiding that he had been printing that newspaper in support of the korean resistance so yeah it was probably a good time for him to jet but uh, it brings up a lot of tension in the family, particularly around her brother, who is, uh, throughout the novel, he's pretty critical of Abuji, his father, who he feels is too meek in the situation that they're in, and idolizes his uncle, who is outwardly a much more, I don't know, dynamic character. Yeah. Well... One thing that is interesting is the way that the book focuses a lot on school and on learning. Yes. And we're meant to kind of understand that the education that Taeyul and Sunhee are receiving at this Japanese school is not much of an intellectual education. It's more of a physical education and also an indoctrination about the grandiosity of the Japanese empire and the emperor. And they do a lot of and physical the threats training. posed by yeah. Americans. and Right, yeah. They also, they reference propaganda films that they watch about the Americans. And eventually, Taeyul decides to leave the school and starts to work on is it an air strip yeah so he's where he's where they're working on putting out an airstrip for planes and he's always been very he's always been really taken with speed and motorized movement so he drops out of school to or it's actually (laughs) he doesn't drop out of school it's part it's you know it's school sanctioned this is part of their Mm -hmm. education that they can sign up for meanwhile soon he and her classmates are gathering rocks to throw at potential invaders and sharpening bamboo stakes and practicing spearing straw dummies. That was school in 1940s Korea in Japanese occupation. Yeah, and this is particularly hard for Soon-hee and for her father because we understand that they are scholars, they're intellectuals, they like reading and writing and learning and thinking. And at one point, Sunhee mentions that she thinks that the only reason why her father is okay with her brother going and working on this airstrip instead of going to school is because he knows that the schooling that he would be receiving anyway is not high quality. It's not the kind of education that the father would have wanted. The family is very interested in classical Korean history and literature and things of that nature. And that's not really something that they learn at school, with the exception of kanji, which is um, a calligraphy that is described really beautifully in the text and that mm-hmm. Soon-hee is very talented at. Yeah, there's a lot of... It ties back, and we'll talk more about this, to the sort of running theme of words and language in the book, and what do our words mean? What does the language we speak them in mean? Kanji is typically associated with Japan. That's why they learn it in school. It's considered to be Japanese, and she struggles with that a lot, that she would be so talented in this area that seems very distanced from her identity as Korean. But one of the things that Abuji tells her is kanji has roots, I think, primarily in the Chinese language mm-hmm. and that it's as much Korean as it is Japanese as well. Yes. When the Japanese army, they suspect that Sunhee's family is up to something. They know that the uncle... Is, was part of the resistance and is now missing. They come and search the house and they don't find anything except for Sunhee's diary, which they burn, 
which is very devastating. It's like the Amy moment in Little Women when she burns oh, Joe's book. Oh, man, but yeah. even more upsetting because it's an oppressive army doing it. Yeah, instead of your bastard kid sister. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, I can only imagine how you felt. Um, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really gutting scene, mm-hmm. especially because we've been watching Sunhi Blossom as a poet and um and a journalist of sorts she's keeping this diary largely she says for her uncle so mm-hmm. that so that they can communicate to him everything he missed while he was gone so it's it's a very painful moment yeah it's it's really sad because we see this as kind of sunhee's way of resisting that all of the characters have their own thing that they do to resist the japanese and we'll talk more about what those are, but soon he's is definitely writing and documenting. And so to have that burned is obviously very upsetting, although she does. So this is a poem that she writes afterwards. You burn the paper, but not the words. You silence the words, but not the thoughts. You kill the thoughts only if you kill the man. And you will find that his thoughts rise again in the minds of others, twice as strong as before. Yeah. Which I thought was a terrific sentiment and... I mean, my God, how <laughs> how fitting across decades and cultures, the idea of resistance. Yeah, the phrase, you burn the paper, but not the words, I feel like is kind of the thesis of this entire book and story mm-hmm. about the importance of, of language and how we carry it with us, even if we can't write it down. That's mm-hmm. also like the importance of naming is super important. The Japanese require the Koreans to take Japanese names because they know that names are important. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they wouldn't make them change them. So it's In the storytelling uncle the kids mention early on that uncle tells them even Korean folktales have been banned. Mm -hmm. There's this suppression of language, suppression of culture through language specifically, that is, uh, as Sarah says, sort of the main point of the book and makes it so special to read. (laughs) So we were talking about the plot. (laughs) Yes, back to the plot. We got so excited about (laughs) the themes that we didn't finish the plot. So uncle is gone and the family uh, is, as Sarah said, getting a lot of attention. Their house has been searched. They're being watched by the police. And uh, Tayul is at one point interrogated about his uncle's absence. And he makes the snap decision to join the military, the Japanese army, because he knows that if he is not in the country, then he can't... (laughs) The police can't hound him for what he knows. And while he's there, he overhears some Japanese generals saying that they need very brave men for a very important mission and that, you know, they're disparaging the Koreans while they're talking about this because they say that the Koreans would never be brave enough. And so kind of to stick it to them, Taeyul volunteers for this mission, this special mission. And it turns out to be a kamikaze mission. And if you're not familiar, kamikazes, basically, they were pilots in the Japanese army who flew planes that were full of bombs, and then they flew the planes directly into allied ships. So it was a suicide mission. And so after a short session of flight training, this is at the end of the war, the Japanese military is doing very poorly. They're running out of supplies. And... So Teul has does some training, and then his family receives word that he's flown his mission and thus is dead, which is obviously devastating to the whole family. The family are heartbroken, and while they're in mourning, it's announced that Japan has lost the war and Korea has been liberated. Woohoo! Can I get a woot woot? <laughs> Sorry, I do not mean to trivialize trivialize the significance of that. But obviously this is a bittersweet moment for the family because they're, they have just lost a son and brother only, I, I don't know, I can't be sure of the timeline, but maybe even weeks before the end of the war. Yeah. And then, shockingly, Taeyul returns home. I'm not doing this justice. This was a really, really big moment in the book and was huge for me as a kid. Oh, the relief. Yes, Taeyul returns home to the family who are obviously 
in complete shock and reveals what had happened. When he had set out on the mission, he had, and we'd, he'd been hinting at this uh, previously in his narration, he had never planned to, to bomb an American ship. He had expected to die, but his plan had been to crash his plane into the ocean, not doing any damage to an allied ship and also taking out a Japanese airplane in one go. But when they took off, the weather was bad. <laughs> Yay. It was so bad. Yes. Thank you. It was so bad that they couldn't obviously fly the mission because, as you can imagine, if you're going to dive bomb a ship from a tiny airplane, your aim needs to be pretty good. And if you can't see, chances are you will miss. So uh, they had to return in disgrace. And he has actually, for the last um, few months, been in a being held as a prisoner of war by the Japanese army. Is he being held by the Japanese army? Yes. Okay. Or, so maybe the technical term isn't prisoner of war, but he is, they are being, he and his, uh, he and the rest of the pilots, for I suppose they're cowardice, I don't really know, yeah, but they have been in prison. Right. They're disgraced because they. Yes, exactly. Didn't. They failed in their mission. Right. And after they wrote the letters and everything. Right. <laughs> it so. seems like we could have let them write a follow-up letter that was like, JK. Yeah. Right. Like, this can't be the first time this happened. Like. I know. Are you telling me that the weather was always good until this time? And they were like, oh, we hadn't anticipated cloud coverage. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, ah, oh, what an ending. Didn't your heart just sing? <laughs> yeah, I was so relieved because I was, maybe we'll talk about this more later, but I was genuinely really peeved at Teul because I was like, what are mm -hmm. you doing? Like you, as soon as he volunteered for that mission, you know, I was like, Obviously, this is going to be a kamikaze mission because they've talked about kamikaze before. It's been foreshadowed. And I know that he really loves flying plane. Well, he really like his life dream is to fly an airplane, which is understandable. He's like a super mechanically gifted person and airplanes are like brand new. So he's super jazzed about them. <laughs> <laughs> but at what cost? Like, I can't quite literally your life. <laughs> like, I have a lot of hobbies that I enjoy, but I don't think I'd die for them, so. Oh, well, <laughs> guess you're not Teul then. But yeah, that was a bit surprising. Um, it's it's framed, the explanation for it is that like Sarah says, he's always wanted to fly, so he very much wants to do that. And also that this is a matter of pride and dignity for him, that he, you know, after volunteering for this mission as a Korean to prove his bravery, he doesn't want to back down. But still, as Sarah says, especially because the Japanese war effort was not going well, uh, there was an understanding when he left, one of the things that uh, his family had been trying to reassure each other of, and that he, I believe, had said himself, was that the war could end um, any day. It could end while he was still in training because the effort was going so poorly for the Japanese. Uh, so it does seem surprising that he would, even though his reasoning is that he could take out a Japanese plane, that does not seem <laughs> like something an 18-year-old kid would do. And he didn't, but... <laughs> right, yeah, I was like, you can... I guess I was just frustrated because I was like, yeah, I guess it's good to take out a Japanese plane, but can't you, like, do something else to it, you know? Yeah. Can't you, like, rip Maybe off the propeller or something? Like spray paint a... So something rude on the side, mayhaps. Yeah, and, and I think part of it, too, is that this family feels very real to me, and the dynamics between the parents and the siblings is so beautiful, and you know how much they love Teul, and for him to just sign up for the military, which I understand why he did it, and it was actually, you know, very brave, and he was doing it to protect his family, but then once he got there to just be like, yeah, sign me up for this suicide mission. Yeah. <laughs> like, like basically because he heard the Japanese talking <laughs> trash about the Koreans. It's like, you know what, though? In fairness, I got to say, you can't tell me that that is not just like a man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, I mean, that's ego over everything that you are indebted to your loved ones as a family member. That's true. <laughs> but in fairness, this is an imaginary child, so I will not be too hard on him. Yes. Um, and I repeat, he didn't die. 
Teul returns home. It is the best ending you can ask for if you read this book and you are 10 years old, mm-hmm. uh, which I was when I read it. You know, he comes back to a liberated Korea. And I mean, it's, it is clear, you know, that things are not fixed. Life is not yeah. magically. Yeah, there's um, definitely, as it is an extremely happy ending. And yet reading the book, knowing that the Korean War is just around the corner and how that will that will just absolutely devastate the country and separate families, many of them permanently. It is it, it does cast a pall over the the ending, especially because Uncle does not return, and the expectation is that they'll be re- reunited with him soon. But as we know, if Uncle and the family were on different sides of the thirty eighth parallel, it's unclear if they actually would have ever been reunited, <sighs> which is very sad. Uh, but the family does begin to rebuild their lives with Taeyul back, and he takes over the uncle's printing shop, and soon he begins to study the Korean alphabet, now that it is finally safe to do so. So the book really bookends with this discussion of the importance of language. We open up with a conversation about Koreans having to lose their Korean names, and we close the book with soon he learning how to study the Korean alphabet. So kind of getting back something that's been taken from her. It's a very very good ending. It is. It's a beautiful ending. I was really, really satisfied with it. Uh, Yeah. Kirkus Reviews said, quote, this powerful and riveting tale of one close-knit, proud Korean family movingly addresses life and death issues of courage and collaboration, injustice, and death-defying determination in the face of totalitarian oppression. Which reminds me, actually, that one of the really important reveals at the end of the book is that we find out that Abuji, the father, has actually been writing articles for this underground Korean resistance newspaper. Yes. And it's a huge deal for his two children when they find it out because they, especially his son, kind of have anger towards him for feeling like he's meek, he's not as brave as their uncle, he doesn't stand up for what he believes in, but he actually in fact, has been doing this incredibly harrowing and dangerous and um, brave thing of publishing these Korean articles. Very special moment. And one of the things that we know um, that is made very clear throughout the book is that there is a lot of animosity toward Koreans who are supportive of the Japanese Mm -hmm. cause by other Koreans. There's a lot of anger toward them. The term is chin ilpa, I believe. The insulting term for someone who is basically, I don't know how else to say it, like a suck up mm-hmm. to the Japanese government. And that causes a lot of anxiety toward the chil- for the children, the idea that their father, not that he was supportive, but that through inaction was nearly as bad. Right. Yeah, that's one of the one of the things that I found really compelling about this book is the way that it addresses complex ethical issues about occupation and oppression and collaboration with your oppressors and all of the different ways that there are to resist. Mm-hmm. And like the mother, her form of resistance is that she doesn't let them kill all of the rows of Sharon trees. She keeps one and hides it kind of under a pile of garbage in their yard. The father, of course, writes the newspaper articles. The uncle publishes the newspaper. The brother plans to crash a comic. Do the most. <laughs> yeah. So I really feel like he could have just saved another rose of Sharon tree, but <laughs> to each their own. Yep. You can't. And some um, of us have to go the extra mile, and that mile is straight downwards into the open ocean. <laughs> um, Sorry. Yeah, and soon he's uh, way of resistance is through writing and documenting. And so there's all of these different methods, and there is one moment in the book where at one point in the novel, this is maybe two thirds of the way through, there's an announcement at school that. Japan needs teenage girls to volunteer to work in factories and that these girls are basically taken directly from this school assembly to 
what they're told will be factories, but in fact, we find out later in like the author's notes at the end of the book that these girls were basically involved in human trafficking and were what's been euphemistically referred to as comfort women for the Japanese soldiers, where basically they were raped. And because no girls volunteer for this, because no one wants to leave their family to go work for a factory, they're just plucked at random from the crowd. And one of the girls who is plucked is the older sister of one of Sunhee's friends. And she ends up not having to go. And the reason why she ends up not having to go is because her father is secretly Chinilpa, and thus the Japanese military reward him by not taking one of his daughters. And so that, and soon he struggles with that a lot. Like, does this mean that she can't be friends with his daughter? Does this mean that they're bad people? And I think the conclusion that she comes to is, is no, that basically everyone's just doing what they have to do to survive. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a really interesting commentary on, on the different ways that people have it's surviving these like oppressive regimes. Yes. Shall we talk about the author? Yes. All right. So Linda Sue Park is a Korean-American author from Illinois, and she's the daughter of Korean immigrants. And actually, many of the stories that she tells in this book are actually her parents' stories, uh, real things that they experienced growing up in Korea at that time. She published her first novel, Seesaw Girl, in 1999, and since then she's written 12 picture books and 14 children's novels. And I think some of the most notable of those are Kite Fighters, Project Mulberry, which was another one of my favorites when I was young, and A Long Walk to Water, which is actually a more recent release that's getting a lot of attention right now. And of course, A Single Shard, which is maybe her best known, which came out in 2002 and won a Newbery Medal. And I love Linda Sue Park. I, she did not have that many books out when I was in elementary school. And I read all of them. I was obsessed with her. I wanted to meet her. <laughs> she was my favorite author. And I really, really recommend that if you guys are in the mood to read children's books, that you read some of hers. She also does equity and inclusion work with We Need Diverse Books, which is a nonprofit that advocates for essential changes in the publishing industry to produce and promote literature that reflects and honors the lives of all young people. So as I was doing some more reading about her and reading some interviews, trying to get a sense of how she got her start in writing, she said that when she was living in England, she took a temporary job as a secretary at an advertising firm. And one of her responsibilities was to sort through the material handed in by copywriters. And so she took a look at what they were doing and thought it looked fun. And so she wrote some stuff and added it to the stack. And then in the client meeting, they chose her copy. And the next day, she had a new job as a copywriter, which is basically (laughs) the plot of how Peggy gets her job in Mad Men. So Yes! I love her even more! Terry and I love Mad Men, and <laughs> I cannot believe that we've made it to episode four and we've managed to go this long without talking about Mad Men. I know, ridiculous. So I thought that was amazing that she just, that's, I love that. And she also says that she's written poetry all her life and still loves reading and writing it. And it wasn't until 1997 that she decided to try writing a book for children. And I can really see her love of poetry in her writing. You know, she gives Soon-Hee poetry that Soon-Hee writes in the book, which is really lovely. I was prepared for it to be bad because, (laughs) I don't know, a lot of times when people write poems in books, they're bad. But Soon-Hee's were not. They were, I loved them. Oh, I love the one about her spilling soup. And these poems are written in the journal that she is keeping for her father, for her uncle, which is eventually burned. Ah, I found it. Splash, a moment of clumsiness. My soup travels from the bowl through the air to my skirt, and I travel with it to the shores of Amani's disapproval. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's it's really sophisticated. Her her writing is for such a young child. It's it's deceptively sophisticated, and I think that. 
this entire book actually is kind of deceptively sophisticated because in order to pull off having two different narrators and giving them equal weight, that's challenging. The literary beauty of the lines is challenging and also integrating all of this history and research into a plot without it becoming heavy or slow and pulling off a miraculous resurrection basically like a Gandalf (laughs) moment of one of the main characters and not making it corny it's a lot it is and to add what you said and I want to talk more about this later to make historical fiction appealing for kids for a subject that most of them probably have no context for Mm -hmm. little to no background knowledge of You know, that is no small feat. And Sarah, if you don't mind, I would love to read this quote from her about why so much of her focuses on children's works. Yeah. But she said, fiction for young people suits me because it forces me to write lean and clean. No lazy sentences, no fat, no extraneous verbal matter. It's the story, stupid. Even more so, I think, for young readers than for adults. (laughs) I'm going to start describing poetry to people as it's the story, stupid. But yeah, I think that the the lean and clean is a really accurate description of this book. Yes. Also, can I make a pitch? I think that the subtitle of our podcast should be It's the Story, Stupid. (laughs) I love that. We're going to make stickers that say that. (laughs) I wanted to just share a couple of my favorite lean and clean moments in the book. This happens right on the very first page, and immediately I read this, and I was like, ooh, this is a good writer. She says, this is Soon He talking, I wasn't supposed to listen to men's business, but I couldn't help it. It wasn't really my fault. Ears don't close the way eyes do. I just love that. Ears don't close the way eyes do. Mm -hmm. It's, It's just a little bit strange, a little bit weird, but also sounds like something a child would say. Absolutely. Um, Especially a curious child. And the way that she's able to pack so much in those sentences that we get immediately a representation of gender norms in this culture, which is super important grounding context for young readers who might not know anything about Korea, especially in the 1940s. And that we know that from this that Soon-hee is curious and also that she's smart and kind of insightful and inquisitive. On a grimmer note, the scene where Amani and the family receive the false news that Taeyul has flown his mission and died. They're talking about, Sun he describes her mother's reaction and how she, she was holding her hands wide open in front of her, staring at the ground at her feet and screaming. Amani, I said, trying to make myself heard. It was no use. It was as if some evil spirit had possessed her. She could only look up at me, wild-eyed, then down at her feet, still screaming. I looked down, too, and saw what was there on the ground. A box open where it had fallen. A sword wrapped in cloth. And an envelope. I knew about these things. They'd been delivered before to other households in the neighborhood. Delivered by the army to the family of a dead soldier. And just the short sentences and the just the way the tension builds, reading that as a young kid. I, even when this podcast was not a glimmer in my eye and I would think about this book from time to time, I would think about that part a lot. Yeah. And then the moment when Teul finally comes home and the mother's mm. reaction there. It sort of mirrors the... Yeah, can you find that? And then I heard Amoni cry out, a strange, choked cry. Startled, I looked back at her. It was the first sound, louder than a whisper, I'd heard her make in weeks. I saw her standing there in the vegetable patch. She threw her arms out wide in front of her, waved them wildly, and made that sound again, half screaming, half choking. What was wrong? My heart leapt in alarm, and I rushed toward her. But before I could reach her, she began to move, to run toward the house. It was as if time had suddenly stopped as if the air had turned to water and all movement was thick and slow. Omani running, me looking first at her and then at the house, at Teul coming out the back door. Oh, I love that. Because that is how it feels, you know, as if things are slow. Mm-hmm. All movement was thick and slow. She's, she's a good writer. I mean, as she says, there is no extraneous fat Mm-hmm. in the work but there's no loss of emotion either right you know you feel it very strongly and man just the tension she's able to build leading up to these 
reveals are so, so gripping. Yeah, this is a great example, too. Um, One of my favorite points in the book of this really lean writing. So at school, after the decree is handed down that all Koreans have to assume Japanese names. The All the school children are expected to go by these new names and call each other by these new names. And of course, it's very hard for all these kids to learn all of these new names and not accidentally call people by their old names. And at one point, Soon-hee accidentally calls one of her classmates by her Korean name instead of her Japanese name. And then she is beat with a bamboo stick which is horrible. And later she says that she has fierce red welts on her legs and the marks stayed there for several days. I was glad they didn't fade right away. Seeing and feeling the sore redness of those welts always made me a little angry all over again. I wanted to stay angry about losing my name. Ooh, which I love that. I, I yes, it's, I feel like it's such a great representation of how you feel when something bad or traumatic happens to you and it's like you want the acknowledgement of it Mm -hmm. especially as a child especially as someone who feels and is literally very helpless in this situation that feeling of righteous indignation that every 10 year old knows oh this is We've talked in a lot of our other episodes about uh, figurative language and some awesome metaphors. And so I just wanted to share one of my favorite similes in the book. This is in Teul's, one of his chapters. He's talking about the first time he's seen an airplane and he's mesmerized by it. And he said, I walk along trying to remember every little thing about it. The noise, how it was so small at first, like a fly buzzing, then louder, louder, so loud you couldn't hear yourself think. And then fading, like the sound had a shape almost, small at the ends and huge in the middle. Oh, yes, I remember that. Oh, I'm glad you noticed that one, too. So this kind of ties into something that Linda C. Park said in another interview where she said that there's no doubt in my mind that my experience with poetry contributes invaluably to my fiction work because I'm fascinated by words. I work as hard at a sentence level as I do at the story level with imagery and sound and trying to make sure that every single word is the best one possible. The challenge is to make it whole, seamless, so that the the story and language aren't separate concerns, but work together to enhance each other, which I, I feel like is a really apt description of the way that the language and the story work in this book. Well said, Linda. So one of the things that we... Uh, mentioned earlier is how hard it is, how hard I can only imagine it is to write a book, a historical fiction novel, and she's, most of her books are historical fiction, for kids who might not have a lot of context around the subject, um, specifically World War II, and even more specifically, Japan's place in World War II, and even more specifically, Korea as a Japanese-occupied country during World War II, which I would say that most third through sixth graders know probably almost nothing about. What drew me to the book personally is we had a lot of... My brother is Korean-American, and we have... And I was very interested in Korean culture, so when my parents were getting us books, they would get a lot of Linda Sue Park books. So I had a little bit of background knowledge, and I can imagine that this would be even trickier for a kid who had none. And I did not like historical fiction as a kid at all, (laughs) with the exception of the American Girl books. Mm. Uh, But I loved this book. I really, I think it had a lot to do with how much of it was like slice of life, you know, the focus on childhood specifically at this time period in this country. I think that this book offers a particularly unique perspective for public school kids like Sarah and myself who uh, grew up with a very Western and Eurocentric historical education. We are both from Virginia. We both went to public school in Virginia. And if you are not from Virginia, then you should know that our standards of learning are a little bit different from the rest of the countries. And for us, most of social studies is Virginia history on repeat for many years in a row. (laughs) They just really want us to know about Jamestown and the Civil War. 
And when we, Black History Month, we learned about uh, black Virginians. Mm -hmm. uh, everything is very, very Virginia-centric. So we were not learning about Japan, and you were definitely <laughs> not learning about Korea. So Park's books were really my first introduction, and probably to a lot of other readers, a history that was not entirely Western-centric. Yeah, it's true. I was thinking a lot about how I wish that I had read this book when I was a kid, and how I wish that more books like this were incorporated into our curriculum because, you know, you get tired of hearing about Jamestown and the Civil War after a certain number of years. I think that this is a great example of, of a novel that can be used as a teaching tool. And as an adult, I mean, I learned a lot from reading this book. It is a, I think it's a super valuable resource. Again, I mean, if you guys are wanting to read more of Park's books, that's something that's really, I, I don't know, really wonderful about her is that so many of her books feature specifically Korean characters. She has a few novels that are set back in like 14th century Korea, and then some others that feature Korean American characters, which I think, you know, uh, Asian American kids deserve to see themselves represented in their books. Definitely. Thank you, Linda. I love you. Yeah, definitely. So you can tell that Linda Sue Park took a lot of care into her research for this book. And um, so there's a really interesting author's note at the end of the book that gives us a little bit of information about Lin Linda Sue Park's research process and where some of this information came from. And it uh, begins with this epigraph by Bruce Cummings. In the South of Korea, one particular decade, that between 1935 and 1945, is an empty cupboard Millions of people used and abused by the Japanese cannot get records on what they know to have happened to them, and thousands of Koreans who worked with the Japanese have simply erased that history as if it had never happened. And that's from Bruce Cummings' Korea's Place in the Sun. And then um, Linda Sue Park goes on to talk about how she kind of sees her work as the scraps of stories that are in that cupboard and kind of filling the cupboard with these stories that have been... They were systematically suppressed and wiped out from the Korean people, which I think is, is really interesting. So she mentions that um, a lot of the characters in the book are based on real people. And then she said, one question raised in the story remains unanswered at the end. What happened to the girls who were taken away from the schoolyard the day Jungshin's sister was granted a reprieve? So these are the girls who were taken to be part of the quote unquote factory. The answer constitutes one of the most horrifying aspects of the war. Between 100,000 and 200,000 women from Korea and other countries conquered by the Japanese were forced to serve as comfort women, satisfying the sexual needs of the imperial soldiers. After the war, the Japanese government denied the existence of such a practice, and the women themselves were so ashamed that none of them came forward to reveal this atrocity. The truth was not revealed until 1979, and it still took nearly 20 years before the women received an apology from the Japanese government. And I was really surprised when I came across that because I knew when those girls were taken for the factory that they were not being told the truth, but I didn't know what they were being taken for. And I've heard of um, comfort women, but I didn't necessarily put two and two together right there. And then I was really surprised and impressed that she included that in her author's note in such a forthright way. I think that some people might think that that's not appropriate for young readers, but I think it's important that this gets mm -hmm. shared and that this story gets told, especially since, like she notes, for several decades after the war, because of the stigma of what had happened to these women, many of them didn't come forward or didn't share their stories. And it wasn't really until the 80s and 90s that this practice became well known. And then um, not until I think the 90s before Japan acknowledged it and apologized. And I was doing a lot of reading the other day on comfort women, actually, because it's still a topic that is the subject of some controversy. So basically, you can kind of look at the ways in which the Korean government and the Japanese government talk about this issue as kind of emblematic of their general relationship with each other, that it's the source mm -hmm. of a lot of strife and that there this is an old wound that 
has not healed because I don't think a wound like this can ever heal. And recently, even Korean court, a South Korean court found that Japan was required to pay basically like reparations to these women who were still alive. And Japan said that that the decision was ridiculous and no, they don't. It's interesting because Japan has acknowledged, like, formally, the the government of Japan has acknowledged on multiple occasions that the comfort women existed and that it was wrong. And the various advocacy organizations that represent the comfort women and the comfort women themselves say that have been dissatisfied for a number of legitimate reasons uh, for why the apologies and whatever have fallen short. And um, basically, the, the Japanese have issued statements that are like, we thought we settled this, like, finally and completely, and this matter is settled, and... How can you possibly settle this matter? Right, and it's, it's just kind of... I mean, I am not an expert on this topic, let me be clear, uh, but I did read a lot about it yesterday, and it was kind of absurd to me, the idea that you could ever say you could ever make a written statement or make a payment that would solve this problem or mean that it didn't need to be talked about anymore. Um, Several American cities have put up memorials for the victims of this crime. I did not know that. Yeah. And it's it's a somewhat recent thing, um, because like I said, it wasn't really something that there was much advocacy about until the 80s and 90s. And I found out that some of this advocacy was actually born in McLean, Virginia at the Korean church. Wow. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, oh. that's my hometown. So where I went to Korean culture camp across the street from you for several years. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Terry and Unbeknownst I have... to both of us. <laughs> yeah. We have this weird um, past of near missing each other, but my heart. <laughs> so yeah, actually San Francisco recently put up a memorial for the victims of this crime and a Japanese city terminated its sister city relationship with San Francisco because of it. Japan wow. does not like these memorials. I think they That's see That's heartbreaking. It, yeah, right? I think they, they they see it as basically Korea Koreans in South Korea not being able to let this go and kind of weaponizing it to continue to have strife and kind of like i said like opening up old wounds but i mean that's a pretty rich thing implying that the wound was ever (laughs) taken care of to begin with it was not spent years festering and now here we are and again you can't really make up for years of sex slavery right i mean the conditions i don't want to get into the details because um you know i i it's pretty horrifying, but the conditions that these women were kept under, I mean, it's just, it's the worst thing you can think of. And then it's even worse than that. Like it's, you know, I knew it was bad. And then I just, the more I read about it, it was just the most awful thing I think I've ever read. And so, um, to the idea that this is something that could ever be done talking about is just kind of absurd to me because what was taken from these women is immeasurable. You know, there's not a money amount or a certain combination of words and a certain order that is going to give them back what was taken from them. And so, you know, let them and their families and the people who care about this issue, I feel like, demand attention. Let them be angry. And be angry for Uh, us. And he told us. (laughs) Yeah. They have a right to be angry. Yep. For as long as for as long as it takes. I felt this, and I felt this throughout reading the novel, I feel like it's not dissimilar to, obviously, America's approach to our past atrocities. The the old, let's not talk about it method. (laughs) The old, that was a long time ago method. I think, and perhaps this is why this book is accessible in some way to American students, because... American readers can make pretty obvious connections between what happened to uh, Koreans in Japanese-occupied Korea and what happened uh, to indigenous people in the United States. This forced assimilation, it's in everything from the, the, the killing of native plants and replacing them with invasive non-native species 
this one heartbreaking moment where they cut the hair off. This is a story that's told by uncle toward the end of the book. They cut their grandfather's hair off in the tradition Korean top knot style and the, the suppression of Korean language and Korean schools. I think that it would be impossible to miss the similarities between American colonization and Japanese colonization. And it is heartbreaking because it, this is a this is a book that tells a very real story of what happened to families in nations all over the world. I agree. And and even particularly Americans were also involved in these some of these specific crimes too actually when I was doing more reading about the comfort women. I read that the end of World War II did not end military brothels in Japan. In 2007, Associated Press reporters discovered that the United States authorities allowed comfort stations to operate well past the end of the war and that tens of thousands of women in the brothels had sex with American men until Douglas MacArthur shut the system down in 1946. Good God. And so I think that also points to part of the reason why talking about this issue in the United States and the memorials and the advocacy work that we do, that groups are doing here in the U.S. is important um, because this isn't just something that happened far away. Um, This is something that some Americans participated in. And also there are victims of this crime and relatives of victims of this crime who live here in the United States and who deserve to have their stories told. There was there was one quote that I found from a woman named Yang Su Lee, who was a 90-year-old survivor who has been vocal about her desire to receive an apology from the Japanese government. And in, in the Washington Post in 2015, she said, I never wanted to give comfort to those men. I don't want to hate or hold a grudge, but I can never forgive what happened to me. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, that when I read that, it just broke my heart, you know, because it, it pointed out to also the phrase comfort women and comfort station makes me enraged because it's just such a I mean it's just such a euphemism and not at all at all a description of what was going on what was you know really just an act of systemic violence there was not comfort (laughs) pretty horrifying and the reason actually why this was in the news recently is because I read a long New Yorker article yesterday written by Juni Suk Gerson, which was published um, on February 25th, 2021. And basically it was her response to a piece that a Harvard professor, a Harvard economics professor had published in a scholarly journal that basically said that the comfort women, that the that our conventional understanding of, of what happened with the comfort women is not true and that they actually, uh, most of them went into this willingly. And, <laughs> and he has been widely criticized for this, although there have been some um, people in Japan who have embraced his article because, you know. I can see why. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Koreans, many Koreans are justifiably horrified and there was a long piece in the new yorker that basically debunked his article which is basically has no academic merit like he just did like the sources that he cited just made a baseless claim yeah the sources that he cited don't say what he claims that they said just like very very basic stuff that should have been caught during peer review wasn't caught and it seems like this stuff happens in academia all the time. Like, really? <laughs> I mean, part of the problem is that when something goes into peer review for, like, a scholarly journal, the academics that are, the peers that are reading it are usually in the field, but they are not necessarily in the same specialty. And so, mm. I, yeah, basically this article, in my opinion, never should have been published. The journal that published it is, like, maybe going to issue a retraction. It's unclear, but it's been widely debunked. And... But it has brought up this issue into the kind of cultural conversation again. And it was interesting. I read an article that quoted one um, one of these comfort women 
who said that she was actually glad that this happened because it brought more attention to the issue and a lot of people were talking about it, which is a... The pain, though, to have to hear something like that. Yeah. About your... About something that you know (sighs) happened to you. Exactly. But this is, you know, I mean, this is what... It all ties back to that quote, you know, this this from Bruce Cummings cannot get records of what they know to have happened to them. Mm-hmm. Thousands of Koreans who work with the Japanese have simply erased that history as if it had never happened, you know, and and that's what this guy's doing. Yep. And ooh, doesn't it just grind your gears? It does. And as I have to say, as an American, it does feel very familiar because, you know, We also come from an imperial country that has committed horrifying atrocities in the name of imperialism. cannot atone for and hasn't really made much of an effort to. Yep, has not tried very hard at all. So it was interesting, though, to see those those parallels because when I was a a student in school, like I said, the, the history that we learned about if we even made it to World War II, which like didn't happen very often because usually that was crammed at the very end of the school year. And yeah. <laughs> we would learn about like World War II and Vietnam and at the Berlin Wall in like one day. Like, go, 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 go. <laughs> <laughs> We're running out of time. Um, but if we did. You guys made it to the Berlin Wall. <laughs> we were supposed luxury, to. Luxury, luxury. In APUS. Um, I think we might have made it in APUS. Yeah. But, yeah, if we did study World War II, it was a very, very much more focused on what was going on in Europe and less so what was going on in Japan and Korea and China and all of the countries that Japan occupied. So, um, so thank you, Linda, for, for giving us a peek into what was kept under the rug for a very long time. Mm-hmm. All right. It is time for one of our final segments of the show. Your fave is problematic. And I have big news for you, Sarah. What? I think our fave might not be problematic. Have we found an unproblematic fave? We might have. Didn't I tell you? I love this woman. Linda Sue Park, as Sarah mentioned earlier, works with a nonprofit, uh, We Need Diverse Books, which advocate for essential changes in the publishing industry to produce and promote literature that reflects and honors the lives of all young people. That's a quote from their website and has been very outspoken about the importance of diversity in publishing. Yeah. So she said that kids need to learn more about the world, about other places, their cultures and traditions. To me, this is the most wonderful part about writing stories set in diverse locales and times. The opportunity to explore how people are different, and more importantly, how we are alike. If young readers can find common ground with a character from 12th century Korea, perhaps they will find it easier to come to a better understanding of those around them. We like her. Consider this our official endorsement yeah. of Linda Sue Park. There should be um, a sticker coming on her book soon. That's <laughs> Sarah and Terry's book club. Also, Linda Sue Park, I don't know if you will ever hear this podcast or if you will ever see our Twitter or Instagram or anything. But if you ever do, please know that you are one of my favorite authors and I love you. That's so sweet. It might be a shot in the dark, but I want her to know. You should slide into her DMs. I, Linda, watch out. <laughs> I feel, I feel, now I feel like I'm being disrespectful and I genuinely feel bad about this because I really do admire this woman a lot and I think she is truly terrific. So should we say how many rows of Sharon trees we would rate this book? Absolutely. Sarah, would you like to give us the first rating? So I think this book is a nine- Rose of Sharon trees for me out of 10. Nine out of 10 rows of Sharon trees. I love it. Because I am biased and I have the power of nostalgia on my side, I'm going to give this book 10 out of 10 rows of Sharon trees. I think that's justified. And one of them is the beautiful scraggly little tree that was saved by Omani. Yes. Oh, love this family. <laughs> oh, I meant for us to talk about this before we close. Yeah. I want to say, I want to give the tie the, that was included in the book, a wonderful connection to a promise that uncle made the children in the beginning when he shows them what the Korean flag looks like and tells them a little bit of the history about it. 
And obviously it is at this point illegal to fly or display the Korean flag. But he tells them that someday Sunhee is going to sew this flag and that Taeyul will see it hung up um, all over the country. And at the end of the book, when Taeyul has been reunited with his family, uh, they've taken the tree and planted it back outside. They are talking about the return, uh, uncle's return, which they are hoping will be soon. As we work to transplant the tree, Taeyul asked, are there any flags? I think we should fly a flag at our gate. Uncle would like that, a flag to greet him. And then Sunhee responds, no, we don't have a flag, I said, but I'll sew one for you to put up. It's a very, very short little exchange. They don't talk about it again. It's right at the close of the book. But I thought it was a wonderful tie back to the promise Uncle had made them about uh, a free Korea. Yeah, I loved that. 10 out of 10 rows of Sharon's, 10 out of 10 Korean flags, 10 out of 10 little dragon pins holding pearl balls. Yes. Please read this book, you guys. It's so good. Thank you all for listening, and if you enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe. It helps other people find our podcast, and you can also find our show on Twitter and Instagram at reading underscore recess, and you can email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. And to all you poets and pilots out there, stay reading.